0: plenty of time for questions tonight so get ready to get to those microphones because this is a topic whose time is ripe, isn't it the art of belonging a throbbing urge that's how Hugh McKay describes our desire to belong in his latest book the art of belonging it's not where you live it's how you live a throbbing urge Idea in this book Hugh takes us to a hotbed of passion and possibility a suburb a fictional suburb he calls Southwood but as with every throbbing urge that desire to belong as we know that he describes is fraught with much complexity because just as we crave the company of others we push them away because they're not like us or we're frightened of them, or because we're shy, or because we've been instructed to push them away, or just sometimes it's simply because we're mean-spirited trollops, (laughs) I feel. So why is belonging an art, according to Hugh McKay, and how does he think we can master it? It really feels like a vital conversation. Hugh McKay is, of course, a renowned social researcher and author of 16 books, including, most recently, his novel, Infidelity, and also the bestseller, The Good Life. This book really reads as a lovely partner to that book, I think you'll discover. He is a fellow of the Australian Psychological Society and the recipient of several honorary doctorates from Australian universities. And tonight, he is all yours. Give him a wonderful welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Natasha, and thank you, and good evening. Aren't you tired of being told how selfish you are? Uh, Aren't you sick to death of being told that it's the nature of human beings to be utterly, uncompromisingly driven by self-interest? And that even when we do something that seems altruistic, the truth about us is that we're just doing that to make ourselves feel better or to look better uh, in the eyes of someone else. Uh, Apparently, evolution has decreed this, uh, that we should be ruthlessly competitive, so intent on looking out for number one, that we're driven to aggressive and even violent behavior towards people who stand in our path. Well, it's a familiar story, isn't it? The biologists, in particular, have been telling us that for some time. But just reflect on it. Reflect on yourself and ask yourself whether that's you. Are you this ugly, utterly self-absorbed, self-interested person driven by a competitive urge? Now, the correct answer to that question is yes, a bit, because that is true of human beings. We are all a bit like that. But there is a far deeper and far sweeter truth about us humans. And that is that we are, by our very nature, social creatures. We're born not primarily to compete, but to cooperate. The the primary characteristic of human beings is that we're a cooperative species and there are good evolutionary reasons for that. Obviously, we're not very good at surviving in isolation. Just take a look at how we live, how we choose to live in cities like Sydney, in suburbs, in towns and villages. We choose, with very few exceptions in the human race, We choose to live in communities because we know those communities nurture us, protect us, sustain us. But the other thing we know about those communities is that they don't just happen. They don't spring up all by themselves and they don't necessarily survive. History is littered with examples of communities that have fragmented, indeed whole civilizations that have collapsed for various reasons. So the truth about communities is that if they are to survive, if they're going to nurture us, if they're going to sustain us in the way we expect them to because we're social creatures, we'll have to do something about it. And that's really the beautiful symmetry of the human condition, that we rely on communities and communities rely on us and if we don't engage with them, if we don't contribute, if we don't nurture the community, it won't nurture us. Now, that points really to the classic human quandary, and Natasha um, hinted at this also in, in her introduction. We hear a lot about the tension that exists between people, our sort of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, our left brain, right brain, our masculinity, our femininity, our rationality, our emotionality, all at war with each other, the more uh, social psychologists and neuroscientists and others look into all this, the less valid those kind of dichotomies. see. even the left brain, right brain thing that we've all thought was a very neat way of accounting for uh, some aspects of human behaviour, turns out to be a very flimsy theory indeed. But if you look at this tension between our desire to be who we are, our desire to establish some sense of personal, individual identity, and the fact that we are and need to be members of functioning communities, families, friendship groups, communities of all kinds, because we need a social identity, perhaps even more throbbingly than we need a personal identity, uh, that creates the inner struggle. A lot of the confusion that we feel, a lot of the conflicts we feel within ourselves about how we should act (coughs) arise from this fact that we wish to nurture our sense of independence, our personal identity, and we know we must nurture our belongingness, our sense of social identity. In other words, there's tension between our sense of independence and our sense of interdependence. (laughs) We want to compete, but we know that a civil society doesn't run on competition. A civil society runs on cooperation. Uh, And so does our survival as human beings. Unless you've been in a coma, uh, at some point in the last few weeks, you will have seen or at least glimpsed a football Final of one kind or another. And team sports are a wonder, I mean, team sports are wonderfully symbolic in all sorts of ways. Of course, they symbolise the ancient, primitive urges to hunt and fight and so on. But they're a, a wonderful, a brilliant demonstration of this tension between the need to cooperate and the need or the urge to compete. Um, because you can't begin to compete until you've learned how to cooperate. Uh, with the other members of your team. And even the competition itself uh, is a cooperative venture in which we all agree to play by the rules and uh, to respect the spirit of the game and perhaps also to respect our opponents. Well, it's this evolutionary imperative to cooperate, to live harmoniously, to feel safe and secure uh, within a functioning community that drives one of contemporary Western uh, people's favourite fantasy. And it's a strong fantasy in Australia as well. It's the fantasy of the village. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just move to a little village where somehow we could get this balance between our sense of independence and our sense of interdependence worked out. It would... There'd be a creek where (laughs) kids could catch tadpoles. There'd be a cute little one teacher school with a wise, kindly old teacher. Uh, uh, it, the neighbours would be kind, but they wouldn't invade our privacy. Um, we could get on with writing that poetry that we've always intended to write or take up wood turning, all those uh, primitive things. Uh, and of course, what drives this fantasy is that we, we overlook things like drought and Grasshoppers and snakes, and uh, higher incidence of mental illness in the bush than in the city, uh, things like that. Uh, but but the fantasy persists, and so we attach the word village to it. Imagine a cluster of housing for old people that wasn't called a retirement village. Of course, it's called a retirement village because that's meant to soften the blow. Uh, everything's a village. We have vertical villages now in high-rise apartment uh, buildings. Well. Uh, The central message of The Art of Belonging is good news. And the good news is that we can create a village wherever we are. It's not where you live, says the subtitle of the new book, it's how you live. I remember conducting some research a few years ago in Mascot. There may be some people present from Mascot and you'll, I'm sure, endorse what I'm about to say. This was some research with a group of young mothers in Mascot, who lived almost on the perimeter of the airport, right under the flight path, and I listened for an hour or more while these young women uh, extolled the virtues of Mascot and how they couldn't imagine living anywhere. But imagine wanting to live in the eastern suburbs or the North Shore or something. In a, this is heaven. And why was it heaven? Because it was a community that functioned. They were all in touch with each other. The kids uh, went to the same schools, etc. They had a strong sense that this was a neighborhood functioning the way a neighborhood should function. Today, they probably would have said, it works like a village. Well, there's plenty of pressure on us to neglect uh, the need to nurture our communities. There's plenty of pressure on us uh, that would fragment and dislocate these communities that are actually fundamental to our mental and social health. Uh, And Natasha and I will probably talk about some of those pressures, but things obviously like uh, we're now a (coughs) high-divorce society. So there's lots of family dislocation. Lots of kids are destabilised by family breakdown. A million uh, dependent kids in Australia live with just one of their parents. Almost a quarter of all households that contain dependent kids are single-person households. Uh, That creates enormous pressure on the parent to make that household function and not much time, not much energy for engagement with the community. Relative to total population, we are currently producing the smallest generation of children Australia has ever produced. Our children are typically the social lubricant that gets village life going uh, in neighbourhoods and communities. When the birth rate is this low, and probably going lower, as it has in so many countries of Western Europe, uh, the social lubricant is in short supply. The two-income household has become the gold standard for middle-class households. Again, people are so busy, so tired, so distracted. They hardly have time even to introduce themselves to the people next door. Our shrinking households increase the problem of potential loneliness and isolation. More than a quarter of all Australian households contain just one person. And that's the fastest growing household type in Australia. The mobility of the population is a bit anti the community. Uh, I wondered if someone was ringing a bell and my time was up. No. Uh, uh, we, we move house, the same as the Americans do, we move house on average once every six years. Um, now that means, because some people stay in the same house for 30 years, that means a lot of people are moving a lot more often than once every six years, but that's our average. Uh, almost universal car ownership means we come and go in those little capsules. You can, you can come and go week after week and never even see your neighbours. Footpath traffic has been dramatically reduced and of course I haven't even mentioned the information technology revolution uh, which I'll be talking about with Natasha I'm sure, Um, but obviously that has fundamentally changed the way we live and in particular blurred a a distinction that used to be obvious, uh, the distinction between data transfer, just sending messages and receiving messages and communication which is a far more rich, nuanced, complex, and emotional encounter. So all of these things and others are working against uh, the preservation of strong communities, which means we have to compensate. Uh, And I want to just conclude these opening remarks by reading you one of the stories from the suburb of Southwood that (coughs) Natasha referred to, which is kind of the laboratory that I've created for the social analysis that goes on in the art of belonging. Uh, Southwood is a suburb that has many little pockets all with their own names: Southwood Fields, Southwood Ponds, Southwood Rise, Old Southwood, Southwood East. Uh, And of course, there are fairly clear uh, socioeconomic distinctions between all of those things. You can imagine who lives on Southwood Rise. Um, But Kendall Street in Southwood Fields has been, uh, was a close community in the 1970s, full of families with young children. As the children grew up and moved elsewhere, some of the residents sold the family home and moved to apartments or to smaller houses closer to the city. Some moved interstate to be closer to grandchildren. Others stayed to watch a new generation of families arrive and begin the cycle all over again. When a young Vietnamese couple, Jason Ng, and his heavily pregnant wife, Victoria, moved into number eight, Kendall Street, Their next-door neighbours on both sides welcomed them, but Victoria and Jason were both working and there had not been much time to connect with other people in the street before their baby was born. They had both come to Australia as students and then been granted permanent residency, so they had no family in Australia. When their baby died in his cot, aged three months, the young couple felt their world had collapsed. They were devastated by shock and grief. They called their parents in Vietnam and both mothers agreed to come out, though it would take a little time to organise. Sympathetic friends dropped in, rendered speechless by sadness. The appearance of the ambulance had triggered an immediate reaction in Kendall Street. The next door neighbours had insisted on bringing Victoria and Jason into their home for a cup of tea and something to eat Those neighbours in turn had been phoned by various other people in the street inquiring what had happened. Over the following days, a stream of local people came to the house to introduce themselves and offer support. One did some shopping, one mowed the lawn, several people, uh, several prepared simple meals and dropped them in ready for heating. At first, Victoria and Jason, inconsolable, didn't know whether they wanted to be left alone or embraced by these kindly strangers. But the trickle of visitors came anyway. No one stayed for long, but people felt it was important to make sure everything possible was being done for the grief-stricken couple. When it was decided that a service would be held in the funeral director's chapel, the street turned up and packed the place out. Weeks passed, waves of grief still engulfed the young couple without warning, but they gradually embraced the idea that life could go on, must go on. They were comforted by the kindness of their neighbours. And when the two mothers finally arrived, they met several of the families in Kendall Street and were assured that Victoria and Jason would never feel alone or neglected here. That's not an uncommon story. And isn't it a tragedy that it so often takes a tragedy or a crisis or an accident or a storm or a fire to bring a community together it always happens of course we always do act like a community when there's a crisis but so often then when we've got to know each other we've said why did it take a crisis to get us to meet each other uh, to get us to form uh, a, a community in this street or in this suburb it's only Uh, when you really know where you belong, when you find somewhere where you can feel both physically safe and emotionally secure, it's only when you know where you belong that you can really discover who you are.
0: Well, let's have a chat, and as I say, there'll be plenty of time for you to be part of the conversation too. Actually, I thought I'd start with a little survey, if I might. Something along the lines of this, do you, and be honest if you can, um, do you feel connected, put your hands up if you feel connected to the people in your neighbourhood? Interesting, isn't it? Who feels very connected to the people in the neighbourhood? Who feels a little bit connected to the people in the neighbourhood? Who feels not very connected at all to the people in the neighbourhood? (coughs) Striking, yeah. Who'd like to be more connected with the people in the neighbourhood? (laughs) Yes, I just thought that was interesting because I, I... in this conversation about belonging, Hugh, I wonder whether for, for all the reasons that you touched on, that there's a fragmentation going on that prevents us from feeling connected locally, instead we're commuting to work to do that. And I remember Bernard Salt, the demographer, said that to me. He, he really couldn't care less about whether he was connected in his local community because his sense of belonging came from the people that he worked with. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, the workplace had become the village. Yes.
1: And that's a very common story, Natasha. I think um, when we're all so busy, and when we are commuting in the way we do, many people have discovered the workplace as a kind of social community, a a tribe or a herd to belong to, quite apart from a work group. Mm -hmm. Now, you can say, isn't that wonderful? And many employers play on this and install coffee shops and ping pong tables and uh, conversation pits and all these things to try and make you feel at home so you'll never go home. Uh, Now, is this good? Uh, Well, it's good that we feel connected uh, to our colleagues, but they are very likely to be like-minded people. We're all doing roughly the same work in the same organisation. Not very amazing that we would get along. Not much test of our moral fibre or of our ability to be able to connect with people. I think, and that applies also in friendship circles, in football clubs and book clubs and adult education classes and so on, of course, it's very easy and important to form a sense of community with those various groups. But there is this other case and it's unique in our lives. It's the, it's the case of where we live, surrounded by people who share this space, drive on the same street, go to the same shops, uh, breathe the same air. And I think, I'm, I'm not suggesting for a moment that our best friends, that our neighbours have to be our best friends, uh, but it does seem to me that the acid test of whether we've really understood what belonging means, if we've, if we've really understood what it means to be a social creature is that we would connect with the people in our immediate environment because they're the people we're going to rely on if there is a crisis. Uh, Imagine going next door when something is really wrong and you desperately need help and you've never gone next door door before and you're saying (laughs) like, my name's Natasha. I'm sorry I never introduced myself, but actually I need help. I really help. need you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's yeah. uh, something vaguely pathetic about that. And it used not to be the case. So there is a, a very contemporary pressure in the, in the Bernard Salt direction saying, what the heck? I don't care who lives next door. I care about who I work with. Well, the fact is, uh, quite apart from the need to, to know who's around us because we're going to need each other sometime. Uh, The whole question of our morality Mm. depends on learning how to get along with people we never never chose to be with. And that's part of the magic of neighbourhoods. Very few people interview the neighbours before they buy a house. (laughs) and say, is this a compatible group? Could I be happy here? Oh, well, the house is all right. But
0: sometimes people find themselves wishing that they had it. <laughs> as <laughs>
1: yes, we know. That's true. Yeah. But mostly, almost universally, we buy the house because we love it and then we hope for the best. Mm-hmm. And what happens in perhaps about 40% of this audience's case uh, and, and all over Australia, in some parts of some, some parts of Sydney more than others, there are some notoriously unfriendly suburbs and notoriously friendly suburbs. And there are all sorts of factors that do that. But the, but in many cases, the magic happens. We buy the house, we're in a sea of strangers, no, no one else in the street, and gradually they come to feel like neighbours. And what's important about that process is that we are learning how you get along with people you didn't choose to be with and learning how to accommodate uh, I mean, you'd never learn about tolerance. You'd never learn uh, about sensitivity. You'd never learn about inclusion, if you loved everyone and they're all just like you. You need the test case. How do I learn to have a loving, kind, respectful disposition towards someone I don't like much, and I don't really approve of the way they're raising their kids or how they appear to vote?
0: Is the moral dimension of your argument in this book is of interest to me that, that social cohesion produces a sort of moral cohesion, yes. which can feel a little icky, that argument at oh, times, no. in a sense.
1: Well, let's get stuck into it then. Icky. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> well. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean well, it, let's. You, look, our, our moral code is not written in the stars. You
0: know, there's not
1: something called morality which descends on us at the age of three and now we know what's right and wrong. Morality is a thing that can only evolve through social interaction. The moral sense is a social sense. You know, there would be no such thing as morality if you, if you existed entirely in isolation. If you lived on the proverbial it's desert relational. island. It's a relational. Mm. Uh, you can't make sense of goodness or badness uh, except in relation to how we treat other people. And we learn that stuff. We learn it in the school playground. We learn it in the extended family. We certainly should be learning it in the street. Um, Inga Clendinen, in her collection of essays, Agamemnon's Kiss, which is a wonderful collection I've quoted in the book, talks about the extraordinary learnings that she experienced when she had to have a liver transplant, I think it was, and was spending endless months in a transplant unit before, during, and after the operation. <laughs> Getting to know people, she never would And she said, this was like being back in the school playground. I now had to learn to get along with people that i had never chosen to get along with, and they're all terribly different from me, and we all got along. Now, that should happen in a neighbourhood.
0: There's a certain nostalgia here, though. You, you do hanker after the neighbourhoods of old, you suggest, and, and you wonder whether we've lost something mm. of those neighbourhoods of old. And at, at that point, I think, you know, do you not remember Madge over the back fence, who really had no care for whether you belonged or not? She just wanted to know your business. Yes. I mean, you know, I, yes. are you somewhat nostalgic about, yes. about something that never really existed?
1: Not at all. Um, But I can see how this charge could be levelled. It it could be seen as a nostalgic book. Um, In fact, someone very recently hearing about the book said, oh, this is a book for retired people, is it? You know, (laughs) when you've got time to connect. I was deeply wounded by this uh, suggestion. Uh, no, No nostalgia in it at all. Sadness that for all of the reasons that I've listed and we can explore in more depth. We have lost something that's very precious and madge over the, learning to get along with madge over the back fence and knowing when, how much to give and how much to withhold and all that. Very important part of learning what it means to be a social creature Mm -hmm. because what it means to be a social creature is that we all belong to each other. Now that's not a nostalgic point, it's a philosophical point. Uh, And I think we can't claim that we've got that idea. We can't talk about the oneness of humanity or, you know, one world or, you know, identifying with um, um, the refugees who are pouring into Turkey or any of that sort of stuff if we can't even get along with the people next door.
0: So take us inside Southwood, because you've had quite a bit of fun here. <laughs> yes. I can imagine you've been creating, you know, you've been keeping post-it notes. For years. For <laughs> years of little <laughs> scenarios and characters. Judith, the head of the committee, you yes. know, for the centenary celebrations, who wants a historical reenactment done yes. and, you know, the yes. high school, the headmaster, the... Yes. What is Southwood?
1: Well, the first thing to be said about Southwood is that there is no Southwood in Australia. Check your postcode book. We have Northwood, <laughs> Eastwood, Westwood. We have no Southwood anywhere in Australia. So it was a dream discovery that there is no Southwood. Because Southwood is like calling someone Natasha every woman or Hugh every man. Um, it's meant to be a kind of microcosm of how suburban life actually works in Australia and to the nostalgia point it's by no means a bed of roses i mean there's lots of drama there's lots of sadness there are shadows there are disputes uh, there are infidelities as it's a rich tapestry southwood but there are little moments you get glimpses of how it can work and that's that's what i wanted to do with southwood obviously it's the product of all those years of sitting in people's lounge rooms as a researcher, listening to people talking about their lives and their neighbours and the life of the street and it's the school. A suburb
0: of so Australia would have 30 book
1: clubs in it, though. Oh, you'd be amazed. I mean, I can give you a precise example uh, from a small town in Western Australia, Albany, oh, yes. uh, which is much smaller than most Australian suburbs. Albany has 50 book clubs <laughs> and they have a book club controller
0: uh, of course they do. And,
1: and if you don't like She's your, Judith. That's yes, Judith, well, Judith, <laughs> Judith McGregor, uh, you, you'll recognise Judith if you get to read the book. She wanted the job of controller of the Southwood <laughs> Book Clubs, but they wouldn't have her. She tried to be controller she of everything. Finger
0: in every part. Yes, of exactly.
1: <laughs> but the but the lady in uh, in Albany, uh, that's her job. If you're unhappy, if you feel your club is a bit. Uh, incompatible. You can go to Mrs. Smith and a quiet word in her ear, and she'll relocate you to a more <laughs> compatible book club. It's a serious business. Yes.
0: <laughs> but you've had a lot of fun with with Southwood. Oh, Although yes. a colleague said, "Oh, what what is what is it? Spotswood?" And I went, "No, no. This is fiction. This yes. is fiction. Yes. No yes. semblance to reality." But obviously, it is. Well, it was semblance about to reality. a lot
1: of reality. I mean, there are many suburbs in Sydney. I mean, I heard um, yesterday. Um, uh, Uh, I did a a brief interview with Richard Glover, Um, sorry to mention the competition although it's all in the same family Uh, and there were a couple of callers and there was a woman from uh, Ride talking about the transformation of a particular apartment block uh, near where she lived uh, that was wrought by someone starting a community garden and all these people getting to know each other over the garden. uh, someone else rang in from a suburb of Newcastle, uh, saying, "You know, there's a bloke in our street who's recently retired, and, and every week he wanders up and down, and says hello, just to make sure everyone's okay." Uh, so it could be there, it could be Carrington, could be Ryde, could be Chadstone. You know, uh, there are there are suburbs all over Australia. Um, in a lift yesterday, where someone saw the book and asked me what the book was about, and I started to talk. Oh, gee, I live in Lane Cove. I mean, Lane Cove is a brilliant our community, we all know each other, and there's a whole, and there are, there are. Lane Cove is one of the famous examples because of certain things that local government have done in the past that have fostered this. But uh, you, you, you do find <coughs> these wonderful places, and I've drawn on them, but you also find the opposite. You find people who are very uh, snooty and, you know, very, only want to mix with their particular, they live on Southwood Rise and they look down the hill at the people in Southwood Fields. Do you think
0: that Uh, um, those villages, that that concept of the village, that can be successful because of the scale, has to evolve organically? Because I'm thinking of efforts, um, you know, where that's been forced and we all know it. The Italian Forum in Leichhardt, if anyone's been there, that was an effort to try and create a plaza, a village, and what it is is a concrete desert with spinifex rolling through it. (laughs) It's depressing.
1: Yes, yes. Does it have to be an organic thing? It mainly has to be organic, but it needs encouragement. Um, um, It can't be regulated. I mean, you can't say, thou shalt be a village, (laughs) uh, which was the attempt of the forum developers, in a way, to say, come on make this like Italy.
0: I see, um, I see the clock tower in the Italian Forum when I've had to walk through and I'll never forget doing a story on Deer Park Prison in Victoria which was the uh, first private women's prison and what they did is they created a square with a clock tower <laughs> so the prisoners could count down the days or the minutes or the seconds or the,
1: or the years. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well that's right and, and there are plenty of sterile retail shopping malls that have little village centres, always a clock and sometimes a plant (laughs) and a seat. Uh, and So you're supposed to feel as though this is the village, that doesn't work either. Um, But there are plenty of local government uh, councils that do quite imaginative things. Look at the library movement, I don't know if any of you have been into your local library recently, it's a transformed place and a lot of uh, local councils are spending big money Uh, redeveloping their local library because they've realised that the library has become a kind of community hub. You don't just go there to borrow books or to read, you go there for an exchange of ideas, discussion groups, book clubs, lectures, author tours, uh, author talks, uh, all of these things and that, your that happen. Your
0: librarian knows her. She knows she, that a she's right on the money in there. And
1: she really gets what her library is giving to the community, and so do lots of librarians around Australia. And I talked to several of them when I was writing the book. Um, it's inspiring what libraries are doing. They, they're in many ways filling the vacuum uh, left by the demise of the parish church which was often not so much about religion uh, as about communities getting together and doing stuff. Um, Well, Now, that still happens with some churches, but less and less. But every community... If a community is going to function, it does need hubs, and they do have to grow organically. So the library is a perfect... Schools are often hubs. Um,
0: the gates are, I was talking to an educator this week who, who said what we need to do and he'd done this is open up the schools on weekends, make them community spaces. Yes. Most high schools have their gates locked with a big prohibited yes. no entry after hours sign on yes.
1: them now. Yes. Dead well, there's spaces. A, there's a couple of very enlightened headmasters in Southwood who are doing just that, opening the grounds for weekend activity. There are all sorts of insurance issues and so on but they've got all that solved. Uh, so that that can work, commercial centres, coffee shops and cafes, even food courts, you know, which I've mocked in the past, but you know they they are working in many suburbs, not just as a sort of public trough, but as a but as a sort of a communal meeting place. Uh, uh, that, that that certainly works. Um, the hairdresser is often a hub, uh, and enlightened hairdressers know that, and they do more than just. Cut and give you colour, a tin tan. Yeah. Yes. And a
0: glass of wine, if you're lucky. Yes.
1: Um,
0: thinking, though, well, let's come to the, on, the virtual. Yes. Because this is something that you give quite a lot of thought, that, okay, if we're struggling, as a lot of us are, obviously, in this room, too, to connect with our neighbourhood, our neighbours, I mean, I find it really, I'm one of those weirdos that says hello to people on the street. Yes. Walking the dog, hello, hello. And I, it's kind of a bit odd. I think it's perceived to be a bit odd that you'd say hello to a perfect stranger on the street. I sign find of it odd insecurity.
1: that. People... sign of insecurity that we don't greet strangers in the street. Communities that are functioning, they do. Uh, it's a very inter- and there's a, there's a definite trend, <laughs> Natasha. I mean, uh, you're, you're not weird. The only eccentric. Uh, <laughs> no, no. There is a definite trend away from greeting people think that's in the street. About. Do you think that's I think just it's about not feeling secure. I remember doing some research in Cabramatta um, uh, a few years ago uh, and um, a woman from the country then known as Czechoslovakia uh, had come to Australia, had had two kids, and she said, I've tried very hard to become completely Australian and I'm raising my daughters as Australians. But the only thing that's really un-Australian about us is we say hello to people in the street. And I thought, how sad. But it it, ha- it it still exists in in, ta- in country towns. It still exists in some suburbs that have a strong sense of community. Some of the peninsula suburbs around the harbour still have that. Um, but it is it is going because we're becoming less connected. Less feeling secure in the community, and when that happens, that's when we become obsessed with privacy. It's what happens in high rise apartment well, blocks.
0: It's almost like we've, we've, we become estranged from ourselves when we don't recognize someone else's humanity on yes. the street as Fair they pass us. Even just a, a glimmer of yes. recognition, or a smile, or a yes. slight turn up of the edge <laughs> of the map. I don't know.
1: Yes raised finger yeah. uh, don't give up <laughs> Natasha I mean it, it, we talk a lot about social capital it's things like saying good day to a stranger you pass in the street or pausing uh, to talk to the lady on the corner who hasn't been well you know just give her three minutes that is how we build social capital it's not some mysterious thing it's all these incidental encounters these everyday courtesies these little points of connection that make us feel as though, yeah, actually this is a bit of a community we've got going here. And when we feel that, we start to feel safer. And when we start to feel safer, we become even more open. Edith Cowan University did a survey uh, just a few years ago on how how much we know our neighbours and how we trust our neighbours and so on. Uh, I've I've forgotten the precise figure, but it was about 40% only of people in that survey said they trust their neighbours.
0: Mmm, gosh. So let's come back to the question of safety because I I think that's an interesting one. But those little incidental interactions... By by the way, sorry, I know we're going to talk about online
1: in a moment. There's nowhere safer than online. Who can get at you online?
0: Yeah, well...
1: (coughs) Sorry, I Lots to be
0: said about that, isn't there? Um, Those trolls that (laughs) lurk. But online is interesting, isn't it? Because that is a space. That is a little bit, if we, you know, get all retro and call it the superhighway, that is a a space now in social media where we do have those incidental interactions. It's a bit like passing someone on a street. If you use Twitter, Mm. it's just a passing stream of people and every now and then you clash and have a little interaction and a hello and send a compliment. Likewise on Facebook or wherever you happen to be. So, in some sense, that's where people are deriving a sense of belonging, even if they don't have it in their neighborhood. And often they might be walking the dog and engaging yes. with this whole world online and passing all the real people That's walking right. past them. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, look, this, is a, this is a huge, it's a huge point. And there is quite a significant chapter in the book called Online Communities, which is a term I wrestle with a bit. I mean, obviously, there are such things as online communities. If we define communities as people with something in common, um, but if you can't tell the difference between an incidental encounter on Twitter and an incidental encounter with a person when you're walking your dog, then I think we need to have a very deep conversation. Because I think there's all the difference in the world. I'm not, I'm not decrying the incidental encounter on Twitter. And, and I fully acknowledge that the heavy traffic on Facebook particularly with younger people, the under-30s, who are the heaviest uh, users, though. They've
0: all left Facebook, actually. Well, they're, 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 they're leaving Facebook the because their parents are just Exactly, on. as yeah. you point out in the book. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. I mean, it's for, it's for little kids and parents. And you know, parents used to say, don't go on Facebook, you'll never be able to get rid of that stuff. Now they're saying, stay on Facebook or I'll never know what you're up to. <laughs> uh, so, of course, kids are leaving uh, in, in droves and going to inferior uh, Inferior sites because they feel it's a little more private. Or edgy. Edgy, yeah, absolutely. But the heavy traffic uh, in social media in general among young people is between people who know each other. So they are using it primarily as a way of augmenting personal relationships that they have. So they're they're on the bus, coming home from school, chatting, chatting, chatting. They go into their houses and they're immediately on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever, still chatting to each other. There may be 500 other people who'll have access to this. But the, but the really the, the strong connections are with people we know. So that seems to me well, quite healthy. Yes, of it's an augmentation time. of, yes, yeah, it's, it's like the ancient tribal connections where it's sort of 24 hours, the web of connectedness constantly vibrating. Terrific. The problem is where we confuse the web of connectedness with all the other stuff and think that that will do. If if screen time starts to exceed face-to-face time, quite a part leave out work and school, but in in your spare hours, if screen time exceeds face-to-face time, then I think warning bells should be ringing uh, in our heads.
0: And there's a lovely point you make about that, um, about vulnerability, about FaceTime allowing us to reveal our, our vulnerability. I thought that was a beautiful point that
1: you make, actually. Yes, and we, and we reveal it often quite involuntarily. I mean, when we have a personal conversation, even in front of, a, in front of an audience, so much is happening. Um, you know, your face changes all the time. Uh, and that's just giving me little clues about how you 're feeling and our tone of voice and our rate of speech and our gestures, our posture. all of that stuff goes when we're online <laughs> when, we're, when we're online. Uh, it, it's not there now, people will say of online connections, actually it's more intimate than face to face. so I 'm more truly myself online i've fallen in love with this wonderful person. And what we're in love with is the sort of (coughs) essence, the distillation of who we really are. We're not letting any of that body chemistry stuff get in the way. This is, I mean, where's this going to go? Eventually they're going to say, uh, yeah, eventually Eventually they're going to say, well, we'd better get together. And then they're going to discover there is no chemistry and they're not in love at all. But they've had this quiet, I mean, it is intimate in a way. Um, you can say all sorts of things that seem intimate, but until you're saying them, and there is a tone of voice and there is a look in the eye or there is a a, a friendly touch on the arm or a kiss on the cheek or something, who knows? So, Mm. and and of course, it's complicated by the fact that heavy users of the internet typically have multiple identities. Uh, It's often as many as Uh, ten. Very commonly, three or four, So we pretend to be different people in different settings. Um, And
0: and one of your characters who is a a nice enough chap, but he's identified as a recluse in the community, he's polite to everyone. Yes. But he has a fabulous life, living the life of two avatars online.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes, I, I make the point when I introduce Harvey Rendell and when I introduce Harvey, I do make the point that you would think someone who was pretty reclusive and very shy, and really lived most of his life online when he wasn't at work, although he worked in IT as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is a bit of a sad case. But actually, he has a ball. He has a wonderful time. He is a reclusive type. And he's created these two, Rusty and Darlene. Uh, and they're one male, one female, who knows? Uh, What's your the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh Yeah. And he has a terrific time. And all sorts of people fall in love with them and then at the last minute when they want to meet, he retreats and goes off and uh, lets someone else fall in love with them, etc. cetera. Um, but I do make the comment after I've gone through Harvey's story that even then you feel that there's something missing. That you feel a bit sad for Harvey. Uh, maybe it's better than him just sitting at home staring at the... Well, it is better than just sitting at home staring at the wall or only ever reading books. Um, or spending his whole life on the telephone, although the telephone has a bit more going. Maybe it suits
0: his temperament, and that's yeah, the thing. it does. It, and there are people like that. In different ways, yeah. don't they? And they have so to find their own
1: way. Yeah, he's, he, he... Before the internet, he would have been a lost soul. So it has given him something. Towards the end of the book, there is a moment where we discover him in company with some other actual humans. Uh, a bit of a... Uh, a bit of a frisson created by this.
0: Let, let's just... Before we uh, reach out to you for questions and comments, let's just consider the dark side, the shadows, as you call them in the book. Um, And, you know, today some of you may have heard the news that um, women wearing, uh, well, the headlines say burqa, but of course there's a lot of confusion about that in Australia right now will not be allowed, uh, even though they've gone through a security screening at Parliament House, they will no longer be allowed in the public gallery. They will uh, have to go behind glass where students and teachers often go. So that's that's the situation um, as a result of the sorts of inflammatory headlines that we've seen this week and last week. And, you know, there's uh, I, I spoke to a couple of parents who are Muslim uh, this week on Life Matters, and the anxiety that they were expressing was palpable, that they don't feel like they're being included. So this speaks to this tension that you talk about between us being wonderful at reaching out to others and craving the company of others, but we are also very effective at excluding others too. And you describe social exclusion as a crime against humanity in this book but we keep on doing it and
1: yeah. no-one gets put in jail for it. Yes. That's right. We don't get put in jail because it's not a crime on the statute book. Uh, it's, a, it's a crime against humanity, like many other crimes we commit, for which we're not punished except in some ultimate psychic cosmic way. or psychic way, yes. Um, yes, tribalism uh, is a very powerful phenomenon, and we love being part of a tribe, whether it's political or religious or sporting or geographical so a neighborhood can feel a bit like a tribe the dark side the shadow cast by the tribe is that you're not in it and unless we're very careful and of course in many tribal settings we're not careful I mean I, I grew up at a time when Protestants hated Catholics and vice versa uh, and, and that was part of being in one of those tribes or the other there are plenty of um, um, coalition supporters who hate Labour supporters. There are plenty of Labour faction members who hate members of other factions. I mean, these tribes are a powerful source of social identity, but they also do cast these shadows where we can very easily forget that we owe as much respect, as much tolerance, and as much humanity and inclusiveness to the people with whom we disagree profoundly or with whom we seem to have nothing in common.
0: And you point to this instinct that we have to herd as being emblematic of our, you know, a- desire to belong. Yes. But as you also acknowledge, herds...
1: Can bring out the worst in us. The truly
0: worst in us. Yes. It can make us, yes. uh, you know, conform in yes. ways that are offensive, yes. in a sense. And yes. uh, not qu- And acquiesce. Yes. And,
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, this is one of... It's a a very general point, actually, we're touching on here, which is, I think, as humans, we need to acknowledge all this stuff about humans. We need to know about the power of the tribe. We need to know about how desperately we yearn to be accepted in a small group of friends or uh, neighbours or whatever it is, a herd. Um, but we need to remind ourselves always that while this is terrific and I'm enjoying this and I, I yearn to belong and I'm being accepted, but, I, but there are dangers in this. I may be becoming too acquiescent. I may be burying some of my values uh, in order to conform to the values of the other people in my little herd that I don't really admire or respect, but I'm letting that become me. So I think. We we do have to be, you know, we're not we're social creatures, but we're not blind social creatures. We we're capable of, of some introspection, some reflection about all this, and once we do that, we realise where the hazards are. It
0: takes courage, doesn't it, at times? Yeah. Uh, let's take some questions or comments. How are the mics arranged? By the way, you, oh, sorry, you, yes. just,
1: you just used the word courage, mm. uh, which is a really a, a terrific word to use. Um, Uh, Carl Rogers, one of my psychological heroes, uh, the founder of the so-called client-centered therapy, School of Psychotherapy, he says of listening that listening is the most courageous thing we ever do because if we really listen to someone, that means we're running the risk of having to change our minds. (laughs) Now, that's what connectedness in a neighborhood is like. It does, I mean, courage is exactly what it requires. I'm going to make myself vulnerable, I'm going to be open to who these people are. And it may change me for the better. I may have to admit that actually my prejudice about Islam, for example, was misplaced uh, or whatever else it might be.
0: Sorry. No, so much to talk about there, I think, and perhaps you can. We'll just ex- open it out to you now, so you can continue, help us continue the conversation. There's a microphone there, uh, just there, and uh, which just means you have to shuffle through. That's right. Everyone will make room for you. Just stand up, move, and uh, people will make I think way. There's one
1: upstairs. And also. there's one
0: upstairs yes. as well, uh, just up there. So questions or comments, um, uh, stories of your own suburban bliss. <laughs> Go for it, just, just move, part the crowd um, and people will courage, move for courage. you. Courage, Yeah, uh, yeah and It yeah, doesn't have to be a question. I'm very happy if you wearing. just
1: want to make a comment or... Yes,
0: yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Ta. Um, I'm a, a high school teacher and I think that probably comprehensive high schools enable students to develop some of that sense of community, perhaps more than schools where kids are just with people they're alike.
1: Thank you. Yes, thank you for that. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Uh, One of the tragedies of contemporary Australia is the radical transformation, particularly of our secondary education system, with the huge flight to private schools, independent schools, whatever, however you want to describe them, uh, at the expense of a public education system that used to be an example to the world and is now struggling. And the reason why I think it's a social tragedy is precisely the point made by that teacher, that we are removing from the formative experience of a whole generation of young Australians the need to get along with people who are not like you, whose parents aren't as rich as your parents and who don't have necessarily the same religious framework or cultural heritage or whatever it might be. The comprehensive high school... Um, I mean, we're still getting there largely with primary schools, but we're losing. In New South Wales now, I think it's just past the 50% mark of uh, high school, of secondary school students who are not in <coughs> high schools. That's
0: such a shift, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And very That's rapid. You know, there's no nostalgia in this. You know, this is a very recent shift, we're talking about 30 years. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Uh,
2: just Curious. At the beginning of the discussion you had talked about um, the tension between being an individual versus the need to belong um, and having that independence versus feeling that you were a part of the community. And then later you had talked about how the community is really important to be a part of. Um, but then you talked about insecurity and how if you're insecure with who you are then you're not able to form the community. So to me it kind of sounds like a chicken and egg. Or do you? become insecure with who you are in order to belong, or do you actually need to belong before you can find out who you are? Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, you captured it
1: in your last few words. Yes, um, I, I may have not made this clear. Uh, the sense of insecurity uh, in a community uh, doesn't, I think, arise from a personal sense of insecurity. I don't, I don't think we have to discover who we are and then we can connect. It's the other way around. The sense of insecurity in a community comes from the fact that we've neglected uh, our relationships in the community. We've failed to act like neighbours. failed to act like human beings in this human setting called a street or a suburb or an apartment block uh, or whatever it might be. We say of marriage, for example, or of any uh, relationship, the relationship needs work. If you neglect it, Uh, it'll fizzle out. And our relationship with the community is exactly the same. We have to work at it. We have to nurture it. We have to continue saying hello to strangers and all those sort of things. And that builds the sense of security in the neighbourhood, not just that we feel physically a bit safer because we all know who we are. And if you don't know people, you're much more likely to mistrust them you're likely to imagine all sorts of dark stuff. You know, that bloke next door is weird. You know, goodness knows what he gets up to behind that closed door. He might be, but he'll seem less weird. Most people are much less weird than you think (laughs) when you get to know them. (laughs) I just want to finish the point there. So if you you do forge these relationships, foster these connections, the community starts to feel like a safer place to be, but you also then learn much more about who you are through your social identity. I think on the back of the book uh, there's, a, there's a quote from, from the, the book that says, the eternal question who am I must be weighed against an even deeper question, who are we? We are writing each other's stories as much as we are writing our own. Now the answer to the question who am I uh, spend your life trying to acquire self-knowledge looking in the in the psychic mirror, in discovering who you are. And in the end, the answer, if you ever get there, and you won't get there because most of who you are is unconscious and inaccessible to the conscious mind, Um, but if you did get there, the answer would be quite uninteresting. (laughs) Uh, You'd say, why did I spend all those years trying to find this? Is this all there is? Is this who I am, just like everyone else? much more interesting much more fascinating question is who are we what kind of society do we want to be? what kind of street do we want to live in how can we make it that kind of street what kind of society do we want australia to become if we want to change australia we have to start with the street and the suburb. so you know there's no doubt in my mind that it's the social identity uh, to, to quote Carl rogers again i, I won't labour by rogers but he is he is a hero his personal life, by the way, was a shambles, according to his biographer, um, but he knew all about his field. Um, the, the personal lives of most psychologists are a shambles. In fact, <laughs> that's, that's, that, uh, I just offended, offended 10% of it the audience. No if you're a psychologist. <laughs> I am myself a psychologist. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but Roger said that when, and he was of course dealing with troubled people, uh, and when his clients came to a point, of understanding who they were, it was always to realise that they were part of some larger thing. It was always to realise that they belonged somewhere, that that it was the family or the workplace or the street or the friends or something that really defined them. That the answer to who am I turns out mainly to be a social answer.
0: I wonder if you'll agree with that. Perhaps you'll have a question. Push back if you feel the need to. You wanted to push back, to. didn't you? I you, you, you thought you like thought the man next
1: door might be weird, and you're better off not knowing. Well,
0: him. I just I just bring that up because it's a bit like sitting next to someone on a long haul flight. Um, <laughs> some, I personally take the approach, and I'm not rude at all. I just say hi, and then I just I'm head down yes. try, because you might then really be stuck. Yes. And if they happen to live next door to you, 24 seven you really are stuck, mm. and so there's a well, limit to how much... Well, are much less stuck than you
1: are on a long-haul flight. I mean, I think, the, the, you know, the, 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 the etiquette of the long-haul flight needs to be observed. <laughs> you know, we're not going to become intimate companions in the 23 well, hours you, it's going to take you us You might
0: to... if you're a high flyer, but that just depends on...
1: But when you're living next door, it's not like being cooped up in a, in a an A380 flying to London. I mean, you can go inside and shut the door and, you know, you don't always have to say hello, and you don't, all, you don't have to invite them in for a cup of tea, but it's better for your mental and emotional health mm. if you know them.
0: We'll, go, we'll try and get back to a case study from the book, but I'm aware yeah. that in the dark up there are some questions. Right at the back there. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, there Assembly is an art uh, to belong. You pointed out uh, that it's more than just a benefit to our society and to each of us. It's simply a necessity uh, now more than so ever, so my question is in two parts. Uh, Firstly, in addition to this message, uh, getting out there, do you accept that there's an
1: urgent need for our society to systematically encourage this this principle, and secondly, uh, if so, how? Mm. (laughs) Yes, thank you for that.
0: And are you Mark? Yes, Yes, that's great, because I think you made a point earlier um, about deliberative democracy Mm. and helping... Mm. Us feel less disenfranchised from political processes, yes. and that then in turn helps us feel like we belong in the some sort of system
1: yes mm. yes yes, thank you for the question and, and of course, I do believe that it 's urgent because of the pressures that we 've talked about that, that are pushing us away from uh, operating like a neighbourhood where we live. And by the way, that's not all the book is about. It's not just about the neighbourhood. It's about all these other communities we belong to as well. But there are these pressures pushing us away from, allowing us to mount the Bernard Salt defence and say, it doesn't matter about these people, I'll worry about the people I meet at work. Uh, that, That seems to me a very negative pressure from a societal point of view. So, yes, I agree with the point of the question, very, very urgent. But you can't compel people to do it. Uh, Obviously, what we should be looking at as communities, as neighbourhoods, as local councils, schools, libraries, all these other things, we should be looking at ways of facilitating it and encouraging it so that people will gradually feel as though it's normal to be part of this community. Uh, And the deliberative democracy thing that Natasha mentioned, uh, which is, operating in Canada Bay in Sydney, it's operating in Geraldton in Western Australia and I drew on the Geraldton case uh, for, a, for a local government example uh, in Southwood where the community is encouraged sometimes by public meetings and sometimes online. The community is encouraged to um, to express views, in some cases to vote, in the Geraldton case just to talk, to express views about, in, in their case, the Council's annual budget. You know, if you want to say something about the items in our budget, we want to hear from you. Uh, Now, this is not replacing the elected councillors, although many elected councillors are made a bit nervous by this process, but it just means that the community is much more likely to get what the council is up to and to be on side, even with decisions that they wouldn't have made, but to understand it if they're in some kind of participative collaborative process. It's it's not about consensus, it's not about the majority absolutely must rule on every point. It's about being engaged so we know what's happening. And I think that's a terrific initiative. But it's not messy. only
0: Which is messy. Very messy. Necessarily messy, isn't it? Yes.
1: Community groups can be chaos. Oh yes. Yeah. Book clubs can be chaos. <laughs> yeah.
0: And intensely yeah.
1: political as well. Yes. Book clubs yeah. and choirs. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh
0: yes, yes. Um, we have a question up there, thank you. And, they, oh sorry, you you were down, I will come to this one first actually because you've been waiting a bit and then I'll come up, yeah. Oh, it was just a fun question really. Um, my experience of community changed significantly when I got dogs mm. <laughs> and Natasha's mentioned it a couple of times. So I wonder if there's ever any evidence that dogs enhance community yes. and if there's any change in dog ownership.
1: Yes. Yes, pet ownership is on the rise in Australia. Uh, there is a lot of evidence um, ab- about this, uh, and there are many little references to it in the book. Uh, Southwood has a dog walking park, uh, and um, the 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 woman who's telling the story of it says how wonderful it is. She quotes Harry Truman, who famously said, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Uh, And of course, he was making a different point, but she was saying she just moved to Southwood. She's saying, if you want a friend in Southwood, get a dog. Not that the dog will be your friend, but your dog will be like kids used to be when there were more kids. So dogs are social lubricants as well. (coughs) She, (coughs) excuse me, she reports, the only problem she has is that now these days so many people give their dogs (coughs) human names that you can't always remember whether it's the dog that's wendy or is it the girl the owner that's wendy Uh, so she called her dog scratch and she is going to be very offended if anyone gets confused about whether it's the owner or the dog that's called scratch but yeah uh, we need these things dogs are a wonderful uh, there, there is a there is a, a a difficulty for some people. I was speaking to someone about this uh, since I finished the book. If I'd had this conversation previously, I would have put it in. She said, "I do, but my dog is a is a lovely. I mean, everyone's dogs are perfect, of course, like everyone's kids. It's amazing." You know, the, uh, so there's. Gorgeous dog, and of course, strangers come up and pat the dog and talk to the dog, but ignore me. So that isn't, you know, but you, you, if they've got a dog as well, then the dogs can socialise while the owners get to know each other. Yeah,
0: you find yourself sort of talking to, well, the problem is if you get a pound dog like I did. She's beautiful, but she wants to attack all beautiful, dogs. Is she? Is beautiful, Yeah, no, she's a highly flawed individual and she's oh, right. a very nice soul, but she wants to eat every other dog alive. Oh. So, my efforts to get a dog so that I could connect with my community totally backfired. Thank you. Upstairs, um, thanks.
2: So, you're saying that, um, I guess, before online connectivity, people really appreciated the physical connectivity um, a lot more than they do now. So with um, you know, online connectivity being available and us looking towards you know, online channels for um, that like-mindedness, looking at work for like-minded people, etc., do you think at this point we're at like an intermediate phase and maybe within you know, the future what we'll do is actually physically move to those hubs where we find those like-minded people and thus instead of more internationalization and more um, integration, we'll create more hubs
1: and more differentiation. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Look, I think that's a very astute observation. Said, so what
2: do you yes. think? Um, well, I think you can already see it online. So, for example, if you have, you know, online ads are really targeted at the moment. So, um, if you're going on Facebook, if you're going on Google, you get served um, ads that are really targeted to you. So, you're not discovering anything new or um, anything drawing. random anymore. So, yeah. the way we, um, I guess, grow is becoming more specialized. So I think um, within our relationships and within our um, yeah, connectivity, will become more specialised as
1: well. Yes. Interesting. Thank you. Yes, thank you for that. And I, I mean, I think your prediction of, or, or question of what might happen is actually a prediction. I think we, we will see, are seeing a bit of a turning of the tide. There are a lot of local neighbourhoods where people are beginning to understand that this is something precious that we've lost And we've got to try and recapture it. And all the stuff we do online is terrific, better than nothing, but quite qualitatively so different from what happens when we interact face to face that you can't really talk about it in the same breath. The fact that our households are shrinking as rapidly as they are, with more than 50% of Australian households now containing either one or two people, and as I said in my opening remarks, the, the single person household The fastest growing household type. Short term, that exacerbates the problem of loneliness and often when people feel lonely they start to feel isolated and if they feel isolated they start to feel alienated and assume that their neighbours are weird because they're alone and and, and that's what happens to us when we're we're feeling uh, isolated. I think that's a short term problem and we can already see what that's going to drive it's going to drive much more uh, community development because we are by nature. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not trying to persuade people that we are social creatures. I don't have to persuade us that we are social creatures, (laughs) like most other species on the planet, by the way. It's not as though we're unique in this. Because we're social creatures, when we don't connect with her... We used to live in herds, you know, 100 years ago. The typical Australian household was a herd-sized household. Five, six, seven people. That's a, a good size for a human herd, good size for a dinner party, good size for a committee. This is the natural size of a human herd but you can't have a herd of one or a herd of two so we go elsewhere perhaps to the workplace uh, to find our herds but more and more we see the rise of the local coffee shop, cafes, uh, library activities that we talked about. I think this is a direct response To the herd instinct that won't be denied and because we're living differently in our domestic settings we're going to reach out more and more to the local neighborhood and I think if we were having this conversation even in another 10 or 15 years from now the number of hands that went up when Natasha asked that question in the beginning uh, would have been much greater
0: yeah, that, oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, sorry.
2: And if you would compare the two worlds, so let's say the world of the future, where um, we're all these hubs of specialised people and specialised relationships, versus the world fifty years ago before online connectivity, which world do you think is the happiest? Ah, happiness. Um, yes, yes. Can we use? He's not uh, too obsessed uh, can we just with perhaps
1: happiness. say healthiest yeah. rather than happiest? Uh, yes. Look, there are there are enormous benefits about the online world. I'm not. I'm not some kind of harsh critic of the online world. and you know, I acknowledge all the, the good things about it. But what's lost is interaction of the kind that humans for thousands and thousands of years have got very good at doing.
0: But it's and also we don't been a very... It's been a, a mind-expanding... Oh, it's it, the it, positive side of globalisation. Yeah,
1: it is. Uh, it, that's right. That's all true. But uh, what I'm predicting is not quite what you're predicting. I don't think we'll be trapped in these hubs of specialisation. I think the herd instinct will, will drive us out into the community, which is by its nature a diverse place. And we will find ourselves interacting with people who aren't just people like us. And we will, I don't know that we'll rediscover the newspaper. I think the newspaper is on its last legs. Um, but we will be more attracted to online sites that aren't so tailored to us, and aren't so selective. Mm. So I think I think um, it won't be back to the way it was 50 years ago, of course. Nor would we want it to be. I mean, I was there, yeah. and you, <laughs> wouldn't, you wouldn't want to go back to that. Uh, it was a much more prejudiced, uh, much less tolerant, less inclusive kind of society then.
0: And there was a lot and of over- overcooked, you know, cabbage and. Carrot on the dinner oh, plate. Oh, yeah, and, really, yes, let's, you know,
1: let's,
0: yeah. <laughs> don't know why I bring that up, but I me mean, I was looking for the vegetarian equivalent of meat and three veg. Yes. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me? We can. Yes. Um, thirty years ago, I think I'm Just I'm come thinking. on, Mike, for us. Thanks. The thirty years ago, kids used to play on the street. They go out and they come in at dinner time, and maybe they'd bring the friends in at yeah. dinner time. So there was a whole sort of neighborhood connection through these children. Mm. These days, I don't know, there's stranger danger, there's yes. there are no kids on the street yes. um, or in the little park at the end of the
1: street, it doesn't yeah. happen. How much do you think this has led to the disconnect? <laughs> it's an enormous factor. Yeah, thank <laughs> you for this. There are, there are three <laughs> things that are driving it. Thank One you. is the low birth rate, there are just fewer kids. Um, so, you know, if you, if you grew up in the baby boom, there were kids everywhere. Uh, now the birth rate is exactly half what it was in the baby boom. Um, so we're talking about a mini baby boom, which is a ridiculous expression. It's extremely mini. Um, uh, we're still way below replacement level. So there are just not as many kids. Uh, there are more cars, so streets are much less safe than that. I mean, I used to play cricket in the street, you know, and every now and then we'd have to stop the game because a car was sighted. Um, But most people in the street didn't own cars. We we won't go on with this conversation, people. This is a book for people who are retired. Uh, (laughs) uh, But but the third factor, of course, is, and this is where it gets very complicated, the kind of world you're describing is a world that was heavily populated with stay-at-home mothers. Uh, And so there's been a transformation which most of us applaud. Um, and there's much to applaud about it. Uh, It is the liberation of women uh, and a drive towards uh, gender equality and gender equity. We've still got a long way to go, but we're moving rapidly in that direction. We haven't yet quite worked out what to do about the kids. So, for the time being, childcare is the answer. Uh, So, they're playing happily in childcare but not in the park or the street. So they're they're invisible, and they're, the doors are locked, and it's a it's a very different world there. Growing up, it's a state in. of
0: mind thing, though too. Hugh, yes, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't. Is. You know, yes. we never came home, so it didn't matter whether our mother was home or not. Yeah, that's true. We just said, See you, and we'll be back at dinner. Yes. And yes. it was a, I mean, I, I was a Roma yes. from way back, and yes. I, I feel like this must be the biggest shift culturally. Mm. And yes. I'm a bit frightened about what it means, mm.
1: actually. Mm. Mm. Well, some very bright demographers, <laughs> demographers have been predicting for at least 30 years <laughs> that the greatest. Uh, social and cultural change that would be wrought in Western society would be the rise of the childless household uh, and the, the low birth birth rate meaning that children are no longer the sort of the social lubricant. Now all the talk from other demographers about how the real challenge we're facing is the ageing population, they're wrong. I mean that isn't the real challenge. The real challenge is how do we make a society function the way it used to function when kids were everywhere, when kids aren't everywhere. It is a huge challenge. There and there's no birth- sign that the birth rate's going to rise dramatically, by the way.
0: No, and I'm aware that we've come to the end of what a, such a fast, fantastic conversation. If there was one thing that someone could do in their life to rekindle a sense of localism, what would it be? Intr-
1: what could it be? Introduce yourself to your neighbors whether they want you to introduce you to them, yourself to them or not. <laughs> just knock on the door and say, hi, I'm Natasha, I, I, I live next door. I just think we should know each other and see you later. You know, don't don't, don't <laughs> hang around. Make sure that, that when, you, when you walk up and down your street, you know who those people are. Because if you don't, you're going to feel like a stranger in your own suburb.
0: Gee, Hugh McKay.